0: Hello and welcome to the Zwift SBS Podcast. Restrictions across the country have made life a little harder for most. One thing I'm thankful for is still being able to train with friends on Zwift any time of the day. Being motivated by the massive community means there's always someone to ride with and new locations to explore. Like the new Japan-inspired Mercury Islands, my personal favorite, and the UCI World Championship courses. Riding with friends makes the training easier and they always know how to push me. Visit Zwift.com, and I'll see you on there soon. Ride on. Uh,
1: bonjour, bonjour, buenas tardes, and uh, welcome to the Zwift Cycling Central podcast. Uh, before we start, uh, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to this podcast on our website, sbs.com.au. slash Cycling Central or log a ride with our
2: friends at Zwift. Joining me, it's Dave McKenzie. How are you, Dave? I'm pretty good, and... and- you know why I'm good. You know why I've got this shirt on. This is well, my special interview shirt.
1: It is a special interview shirt because And I even iron it. <laughs> Yourself? I'm impressed. Yes, I do. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh special interview day because it's a special day. We are the day after the rest day. So of course we don't have that much content from last night's stage because there wasn't any stage last night. But like we did last week with Kunde Court, we've got a special guest with us.
2: And he's a great guest. No? It is a great guest. He's introduce a lad. Can I introduce him? Go
3: on. Do for okay. It.
2: it is the one and only Mitch Docker. Mitch, how are you, mate?
3: Very well, thank you. You have to excuse my background surroundings. I'm coming to you from the hotel room.
2: <laughs>
1: oh. It's fun. You're the lucky one. We are, we are the ones stuck here. You're you're lucky. You don't know how many Australians are envious for you to actually for us to be in a hotel room somewhere abroad.
3: Well, yes, like, I'm glad you added on somewhere abroad because otherwise stuck in a hotel room is pretty easy to be in Australia if you want to do quarantine. I'm sure you can organise that.
2: Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, well, where, which hotel are you in, mate? Which country, which city and what's, what's uh, on at the moment for you?
3: I'm right up in um, Holland now. I'm just sort of in the start of uh, the Bing Bang Tour and... Um, it's raining outside, it's grey, we're just about to you know, get ready to hit, head off to the stage soon. So um, I'm back at racing, it's been a bit of a break for me, but now I'm in this final period of me, my last part of my career, doing Bing Bang Tour, a bunch of racing up in Belgium, and then head up to uh, Paris-Roubaix.
1: Yeah, so Paris-Roubaix, I've got a special t-shirt on, you didn't mention it. Look, yeah. Paris-Roubaix t-shirt, just for you, because we Very know how cool. much you love yeah. this race. Yeah. Look at this. Right, I can't uh, believe on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we know we love this race and you love this race as well. And you mentioned retirement is, is looming for you. But Paris-Roubaix this year, a little bit special?
3: It is. It's just like, how perfect can this be? If, unless you're a really big guy, you know, like a Tom Boonen or, you know, maybe uh, like a Matt Heyman sort of said, like, let's get to Roubaix in the middle of the season. I'll call my uh, career quits there. I'm not such on that stature where I could do that. But in the end, Roubaix went to the end of the year and I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to be able to finish on my favorite race. (laughs) But also it's a carrot to finish your career. There's that potential. I don't know, but I'm I'm assuming if you just have some other races that you have no connection to at the end of the year, it'd be very difficult to stay focused right to the end of the year. Having Roubaix there as your final race, not only is it exhilarating, but it's also scary. So it's like, oh, I have to train right till the line the last day of my career. So um, that's also been really cool over the summer here, just preparing for Roubaix at the end of the year. I
2: was going to say, it's a novelty, isn't it, Mitch? And the other part of it is, and I've just realised this, uh, I've known you well enough as an athlete, of course, over the years, but um, I thought I'd better just um, tidy up on some research. It's your birthday the day before Paris-Roubaix, your last race, which I think it's fair to say it is your favourite race in the whole world, doesn't get any better, does it? And the only thing that can top it off now is, um, you know, early break. Break stays mm-hmm. away. You're in it. Everything goes perfectly. You know, the odd the odd winner has a flat tyre, so you might have a flat, <laughs> but other than that, it all goes perfectly.
3: I think that's right. Like, and you know, a few people have said, you know, what happens if you, you know, win A or something like that happens? I think that's, look, that's definitely not out of the question with that race, but I'm, all I really want out of the race is, like you said, a a perfect day, a great day. And that doesn't necessarily mean without problems. I'm happy if there's, not happy, but I know that there's going to be stuff. There's going to be crashes. There's going to be punches, whatever. But the way I want to approach that race is put everything out there, get to that point where I'm done my job or whatever i need to do get so and so into whatever sector or get in that break and then blow up and then this thing with roubaix is you you see where you are you assess where you are that could be 100k from the finish it could be 20k from the finish and then the next part of the race happens is how am i actually going to get to the velodrome now inside the time limit so there's sort of like a two little race thing there is that you don't start the race just trying to get to the velodrome well not in my opinion anyway you start the race with an objective to achieve that objective. Win the race, do your job, whatever that is. Then you see what happens in the day, and then it's like, all right, now I need to get in. How am I going to do that?
2: <laughs> um, so we're we immediately, and we didn't plan this, but we're, we're all the, the three of us are so focused on Parry Bay, and of course that's great, and I'm loving it that you're, you know, you're totally switched on, and like you said, you can't sort of relax the last three months of your cycling career, but. I think we need to go back just a little bit, mate. We need to go back to when you turned pro in '09, and you've raced for three teams throughout your whole career, effectively. And the first one's an interesting one because we spoke to Kunda Court um, uh, last week. He was a teammate of yours at Skill Shimano. Yep.
3: Yeah, he was. Um, he was like a... I guess, sort of like a fellow Aussie on that team at that point. Um, I wasn't that aware of Kun before. He'd already been pro um, for, I want to say, two or three years before that. So he sort of came into that team, and he was also in a a, more or less a pro team before that, the Rubber Bank Continental. So he was a very, very experienced guy. Plus, he spoke English perfectly, almost like an Aussie back then. Um, And he was dating an Australian girl too back then. So... He was pretty close to home. He was coming back to Melbourne. So it sort of felt like I had a bit of a compatriot in the team. Um, and that team was a, it was a great team. I, you know, at the time, it's always one of those things at the time you don't necessarily realise what it is. You don't necessarily love it. It sort of feels like a hard time. But I look back so fondly on those years and I think that really did help to shape the length of my career and the style of rider I am. Having those times in a foreign team, In a smaller team where you just sort of had to learn your way fight your way through and ultimately realize if you wanted to be a pro or not um you know you didn't have anything too easy and you just had to like i said really work out if you loved it fight your way through and ultimately once you came through that if you got through you're sort of set up to on your own feet to continue on for another 10 years or so
1: and if we just uh go a bit fast forward but there's of course the the link with uh, matthew hammond and now we're talking about paris-roubaix uh matthew hammond was uh a a great, uh, you know, teammate in Team Australia. Here we got a picture on uh, from your Instagram, but uh, so you know him very well. Uh, and and how much do you get inspired by uh, by his win at Paris-Roubaix?
3: Heyman was a very big sort of, um, he was a big idol for me throughout my career. And especially in those early days in school Shimano, he was in Rabobank and I used to look for Heyman in the classics races. I'd be like, where's Heyman? Where is he? Okay, he's about 100 wheels in front of me. I've got to get to Heyman's wheel. And he was a really a, iconic sort of person I'd look for in the races. Okay, he's always in good position. Follow his wheel. Try and be where Heyman is until a certain point until I get dropped. But then once we became teammates, I also looked up to him as a, as a teammate because he was a you know a leader in the team, a road captain, if you say that, Um and I try to sort of look the way he approached things, the way he went about things. And then to go forward to Roubaix that day, it really did give me hope. And this is not to take anything away from Maddie but every so often there's a rider that no one ex- sort of expects. You have to be a very good rider to win Roubaix, but they're not the, the rider that wins it multiple times or wins a lot of races. But Maddie again gave me this hope. And I, I was in a bit of a crossroads myself in my career. And when, when I heard that Matt had won, I was like, there's hope. There's hope for guys like myself, you know, and that's what keeps you involved in it and wanting to come back and do a race that can defeat you 90% of the times, but it's those 10% of the times that you go to Roubaix and it gives you this hope like one day I'm going to be up there and that doesn't necessarily mean holding the rock. Sometimes it's just a good day, finishing top, top 20 or top 30 and you know everything's gone right and that's that's enough to keep you rolling till the next year.
2: Yeah, it is and, geez, we're sticking with the Roubaix theme here. I know. <laughs> the year correct me if i'm wrong mitch the year maddie won that was the year of your nasty crash in the Arenberg forest and it's like this classic thing isn't it i think you haven't you haven't been a true well you have but you'll know what i'm saying you haven't been a true racer of roubaix unless you've crashed in the Arenberg forest i mean tell us about that and did it change much of the psyche for you not just about Roubaix but about your pro career because that was a as we all know it was a nasty crash you recovered from it thankfully and you're, you're still racing but but did it change anything for you do, do you suddenly say well I don't want to take those risks anymore or this or that T- talk to us about that
3: it really did um I think at that point in my career I must have been about eight years into my career or so and I wouldn't say I was coasting along but there was a certain flow to my season and it hadn't really changed for a lot of years and I almost sort of took it for granted what I was doing um and I didn't really know if I loved it anymore I was just sort of doing it because it was what I was doing I was racing and the season would roll on you do the classics you have a break I do the Vuelta, and that's sort of how things happened and this crash really made me stop and reassess things and really allow me to have this decision of, do you still want to keep doing this? I think you've got a a really good excuse to stop if you need one, Um, or do you want to just keep going? And really, if you're going to do this, at that point I was in the first year of a two year contract at Green Edge, So I had time. So I went, if you want to do this, let's go. If not, pull away. Because there there was a lot of sacrifice and it really made me realize how much people were invested in my career family friends and that crash really affected them too and I was like, it's not just me in this you know and so I went if I'm going to do this let's go for it let's and in my mind I thought I had one more year left in my career I just went okay I've got one year left let's do it let's go let's go for it and um the first step was if I really love cycling that came pretty quick and then when I knew I wanted to come back and race through Bay, I knew I wanted to race still um and then I really went for it. And I feel like I turned a page and went in a different direction, whether people knew that or not. Mentally, for me, it was a different step. Um, and it really, you know, I think, what is that, sort of five, six years ago now. Um, at that point there, like I said, it could have gone either way. And it's gone on for another five, six years, which have been great years and different years of my career.
2: Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, isn't it? I guess you, you look back on it and we all love to have a crystal ball in our pockets but um and i remember that day actually because i was at sector seven at the belgian slash australian vip tent <laughs> and your dad was there of course and um we were getting very little information we'd heard about your crash and um but yeah i know he was he was you know wanting to get to the the hospital that you're at and, and check on you you talk about matt Hayman, and and, and you know, influences and idols that you had. You've raced with a bunch of guys, three teams. um, I say only three teams because a lot of riders jump around a lot. So three teams isn't a lot in pro cycling, but um, you have raced with a bunch of guys and your age and guys younger, Chavez, Magnus Court, who we're seeing having some great success at this year's Vuelta. What, What sort of mentors would you, do you look at now? Have you had a sort of chance to sort of think about some of that stuff yet? Thinking, gee that person had a really big influence on my career and continues to, or, I, or, you know, they said something to me once, I was rooming with them one night and I really took that and I carry that sort of, that phrase in my head for, you know, throughout my career. What what people have sort of, you think, had a really big influence on your career, whether it be cyclists or non-cyclists?
3: Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. You know, there's been many people, um, especially outside of cycling, um, that I had a big influence on me you know my brother being one um you know a, a gym trainer back in australia being another one early on in my career sort of um under- allowing me to understand that when i came back from those first few years really i was a bit disillusioned with the world and with with the cycling world and didn't really think i was going to make and he he able he was able to make me see that I've made the big step to get to Europe and that now it's just small steps to go from there. And, you know, the rest is sort of history from that point. But I really feel like my career could have gone two ways back in those early days. Um, But as a cyclist, I think one big thing that for me has been very lucky and uh, people may or may not know is that I have a podcast called Life in the Peloton. Yep. And I originally started that just to try and explain to people back in Australia, really, what life was like as a pro. And I didn't really realize what that was going to do for me. But doing those interviews with other pro cyclists, you know, my, the guys that I race against, most of the time, if not all the time, all I'm doing is picking their brains and trying to find out about what makes their, their brain work or what makes them race really well. That was just a platform for me to actually ask them, how do you do that? Because this is what I struggle with. And how do you not struggle with that? Whereas if you sort of just ask guys like that, not in interview form, it was just sort of was a bit weird, you know, and I could ask these guys that I probably wasn't that close with, you know, my friends, I would always ask them those questions, but the guys that were sort of, I was friendly with, but they weren't close mates. I could get them on the podcast and chat to them about that stuff, pick their brains and, take little tidbits of information and then try and apply it to my own career. Um, that was really, really handy and then that's what I realized the podcast was also good for me. Okay, I was also explaining to other people what life was like as a pro but I was also learning a lot out of the podcast itself too.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Hey, I'm just going to play you a little grab. It's from Michael Storer uh, at, uh, at at the Vuelta and then I just want to ask you about him and about the, the future of Australian cycling straight after this.
2: How do you recover? Uh, How is your recovery after two weeks of uh, racing and racing hard, going for the wins? Yeah, it's difficult. Like some nights you you sleep less and you feel tired all day. Um, Yeah, and yeah, it really builds on the fatigue. And yeah, you just try and try and
0: take it easy when you can in the race as well.
1: So yeah, second week uh, completed of the Vuelta. He looks actually pretty tired in his eyes, but uh, uh, I mean, more generally, how do you rate this all these younger generation coming through and a lot of young Aussies as well. Jay Vine, hmm. Michael Stewart are lit- lightening up the roads uh, at the Vuelta. I mean, if you had a mentor role to give them, you know, what would you say to them?
3: It's actually got a funny story about that because I remember going to of a welter a few years ago and jai hinley was going it was his first grand tour and um i remember at the airport we landed and i can't remember exactly where it was but we landed at the first stage and i was like jai yeah you got your first grandy and um try to pass on some advice to him mate don't focus on the stage 21 pick your you know pick your goals along the way you know break it up and then eventually when you get to stage 15 16 think about trying to finish the thing I felt like such a fool. There was a couple of days that were like the hardest possible days to get in the break, and you were just those days where the the race exploded, and you're finally like, Yeah, "Is the break gone? You know, like you're coming back from Group Edo or something, <laughs> and you finally get back to peloton. Who the hell is even in that break? Like, who are these <laughs> machines, Jai Hindley, both days? And I was just thinking, who am I telling this guy? You know, don't just be careful. Maybe you're not going to finish. You know, and I'm thinking. Oh, God, I can't advise these guys anymore. And, you know, Michael, sorry, hes another one too. I roomed with him way back in the day. He came to a Green Edge training camp at the AIS, and um, they threw these young guys. Jai was there too. They threw these young guys in with all of us and said room with a couple of the the guys in the professional team. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of advice for um, Michael because he was very, very technically – he probably knew a lot more about the data side of training than I did. Um, He was very – specific with the way he trained he knew a lot about his training and in those days if anything he was a bit too switched on that was probably the advice i would have given him i was like mate just take a break you're never (laughs) going to last this long if you keep going like this but lo and behold you know he's 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 learned his way to race as well i definitely noticed when he first came into the peloton he was just a bit lost in those first years like a like a lot of us but you know being a lot power driven Data driven, but he's very much adapted to the Peloton. And again, that team, this is the the skill Shimana that I was in is now DSM in all these years later. I think it's a very good breeding ground for one finding talent, but two, for develop them, developing them into real races before they go off and just become workhorses or whatever. There's a there's a chance that you know Michael Storr, if he'd gone to another team because of his ability, his Um, want to just push good numbers and he's got the engine for that. He could have just been burnt out riding the front somewhere but now look at him, the way he won those stages was very crafty obviously he had the engine and to back it up, you know, that's something he's learned over those years, racing in Holland, racing in a team where he just had to find his way.
2: It's it's (laughs) that is both (laughs) funny (laughs) and fascinating uh, those stories about Jai and Michael, it's You're you're one of those pros, I guess, in some ways lucky, unlucky too, because you've got this talent that's absolutely breaking the glass ceiling. But you're fortunate that you've seen, I guess we can call it the old school form of training from your very early years as a pro to now. What do you put down the psychology of these younger guys too? Because I think you know, you've been around cycling long enough, the old school pros grew up in cycling at a really young age. Their parents raced or they had an older brother or sister that raced and they came through. Now we're seeing these young kids literally take up cycling at 17, 18. By 20, they're a pro. Not all of them, but some of them are a pro. By 21, they're winning big races. Is it just science? or I mean, of course it's not just science, but what is it? What Can you pinpoint it?
3: It's funny. I was trying to get into the head of Tom Pitcock. He was on the podcast as well. And that was something I was trying to ask him. I was like, what is this? You know, are you not intimidated? You know, you just come into these races and just sort of expect that you're going to be there. And because for me, it was a whole lot of intimidation by these older pros that I saw them on TV. And there was going to be a, whether I knew it, there was an element of time before I could feel like I could ride in a certain position in the peloton, before I earned my stripes, before I could do certain things. Not that that was a bad thing. I sort of enjoyed that process. You learnt every phase of the peloton until you got to the, the top rung, you could say. Um, and now I think what's changed is these guys have this belief that, well, hang on. I can do the same what's as – I always use Chris Froome. I can do the same what's as Chris Froome on a climb, you know, Egan Bernal or whoever it is. Um, because, you know, they can. there's access to the data now. There's the access to Strava, these things where they can compare themselves before they're in the peloton. I want to say back when I was still turning pro, there was a massive element of racing. If you couldn't prove yourself in a race, it didn't really matter what you could do in training. People didn't have that accessibility of what you could do. And it was not It was sort of meaningless, you know. Yeah, I, I climbed back in Melbourne, King Lake, there were so many records floating around. No one really knew what the record was. Yeah, you know, William Walker, he did 15 minutes up here. Yeah, but so-and-so did 14 minutes. And you sort of believe that off myths and stories. Now, unless you've got the Strava, it doesn't mean anything. So what I'm trying to say is back in the day, unless you did it on race day, it didn't really matter. So there was a big element of racing, and you learnt that race craft, and you sort of worked your way into the peloton. It didn't matter if you're an engine or not as long as you were first across the line. Now... Yeah, yeah. They look into the data, guys are getting hired before they know if they can race or not, which is a good or a bad thing. I talked about this in the tour as well. Mm-hmm. Some guys are coming in a little bit inexperienced and they just, I think, are getting this idea of, don't worry, he's got the engine, he'll learn how to race once he's pro. I don't know if that's the right approach, but that also is a bit of that naive approach, which I don't mind, is that these guys go, well, I'm pro now, I've got the I've got the legs, I'm just going to go without fear and try and win this race which is sort of nice in a way.
2: Yeah, it's, it's,
3: it's yeah, unbelievable.
1: you you got the flip side of this. you got the guys like Jay Vines that were able to actually go into the pro, go into a contract on the back of their data, the data set that they've been they've On the been back putting. of a
2: virtual race. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> it blows my mind. Can you imagine? Jeez, I'm ancient. I'm completely ancient. Um, yeah, we talked about guys that you've raced with and and – Races you've done, four world championships, a Com Games. This is a hard one, a hard question, I guess. And we look at that picture again with with Matt Heyman. Favorite roommate, favorite teammate. <laughs> There's a bunch I know, Ooh. but who, who do you think's had the biggest impact on
3: you as as a teammate? Um, I tell you, someone, Cameron Meyer was. Probably my favourite roommate. Um, Luke Durbridge is right up there too. Him and I did all the Worlds together and we always, once we left teams, it was fantastic to connect back at the, the World Championships as roommates. And we roomed together in the Classics as well and we're great mates. They were, he was a great roommate. But why I say Cam Myers is because we always seemed to room together in the, the Grand Tours, um, the Giro and also the Vuelta. Um, and he's just a really great roommate plus a great guy because he's calculated he, you could talk to him about the details of the race but he had a very he was very humble you could talk to him when you're really down give you some honest advice and vice versa he didn't mind asking you stuff there's nothing worse than you if you're the one always telling your problems you never hear anything back um so you could really convey but also once again a, a good roommate is someone who can understand it's time to just be quiet and go to bed so <laughs> he was a fantastic roommate, a great guy, a really great tactician, and a great cyclist. As we know, he's done a million things on the bike, back and forth from the track. Um, and I guess, yeah, the the person I guess who had the most influence on me was back in those days in in Green Edge. It was it was an amazing team for me to come there as a younger pro and race with the guys that I idolized: Stuart O'Grady, Robbie McEwen, you know, Alan Davis. Brett Lancaster, all these guys I looked up to, suddenly I was teammates with them. That was such a weird thing for me to then cross the line and know them as mates past just being you know teammates and idolising them. And then suddenly you notice that transition that you were suddenly becoming the older guy um, and then young guys were coming in and looking up at you. I'm not going to say as much as I as, as Stuart O'Grady, but you were suddenly that older guy and you were passing on that knowledge um, so there was a, there was a really nice transition through that team, and obviously the the culture of an Australian team. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the hairstyle? Because I'm happy to see the the hairstyle is back. At some point we had this. Yeah. Can you <laughs> talk to us about what was that? Uh, and happy that this is back also.
3: Yes, yeah, the, the bushfire appeal. That was that was a crazy idea. Like I was rooming with Lockie Morton and. Um, I was. I live in Country Victoria now, um, back in Australia, and it was. We're in a position where, if the fires could come over this sort of this this crest, they would come straight down into the town, and it has happened before like that. But they've stopped it before the town. And Ash Ash Wednesday was up around where I was, and so there's a lot of memory up there. And I was thinking, you know, this is. It really hit me. Like this is real, you know. Not that it didn't hit anyone else, but I understood the danger of that. And going to tour down under, I thought we got to do something, you know, like a lot of people did. Um, it was only a small thing. I only thought we we're going to get, you know, a few hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars. But see, the lucky, let's shave our mullets off. Let's do something crazy, you know. He had a big hairdo at the time. So we did that. Um, it had a big effect. We, we I think we got about $7,000 in a, in, a, in one night. Um, I think you got, more oh, there you go, $7,600. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. <laughs> I remember it was, and, you're right. Lockie had this huge mop. Yours was pretty good too, by the way. Um, it was it was it was done with a live audience. It but, was it was nice. But just to
1: extrapolate on this. The mullet, such a. It's coming from me, French guy, but it's such an Australian icon. Is it recognized as an Australian icon in your life in a peloton? Are they going? Oh, here's the Aussies. Mullet, 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 mullet. <laughs>
3: Well, there's actually this, I get more recognized for this, there's a TV show here in Holland called New Kids, um, and it's more or less like a Australian or a Dutch version of like an Australian bogan show, um, and a lot of people just, you know, <laughs> are actually genuinely laughing at me, not with me, at me, because they're like, you look like the most ridiculous show guy in, in Holland. Um but, you know, look, the, the real mullet of the peloton is Shane Archibald, and I'm not trying to, you know, steal any of his thunder. That's the real mullet. I don't want to go that far. That's that's a crazy-ass mullet, but I'm just happy to keep it a bit tame. I um, don't know. I don't mind changing things up. You know, shave the mullet off every so often, shave the mullet off, uh, like we said. So um, it has been an icon look over my career, but it's come and gone over, over that time too.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're dead, right? That's the flying mullet. Yeah, That's Shane Archbold. <laughs> he, he holds that. Uh, Mitch, finally, before we wrap up, what's in store? I, I understand you're moving with your wife and two kids back to Oz at the end of the year, hopefully, if we let, if our government decides to let you back in. Um, what's What's the plans? Are you one of those guys that have meticulously planned retirement and planned what you will do for the future or take a bit of time out? drink some coffee at the coffee shops in Melbourne when they open up what's what's the plan
3: (laughs) I yeah look I did have this idea of doing stepping straight into something you know throughout my whole career you always get asked that question it's always nice to have an answer ready Um, and I always had an answer ready I wanted to set up a place up where I lived and I guess I'm not I haven't gone off that idea but someone gave me some advice not too long ago and said look if I can give you any advice, don't step straight into another career, straight off this career. Give yourself time to find out who you are, not as a pro, um, or, you know, just understand who you are moving back to Australia. So I have got some things, obviously, to keep things ticking over. Um, I've just stepped into this um, business with EF called EF Coaching. I'm starting to do some coaching now, and, you know, I'm not too sure whether that's going to be something I want to do full-time or for a long time. I just thought, you know, I'll give that a shot. Um and, you know, I do want to just give myself that chance to work out what I'm doing. I'd love to do some stuff in the cycling media um, and then actually try and do something away from cycling and see what, you know, maybe I do want to step completely away from it. I doubt that'll be the case of something I love, but I think I do want to go down and, and do something that is completely different and challenge myself, you know, work at a cafe or I don't know go back to to my old high school and and do some coaching or something like that it's just I do need to experience something outside of the small bubble of cycling I think to see the real world and and get a bit more of reality to things
2: Yeah,
1: yeah uh, well I'm, sh- I'm sure we can to uh, put a few ranks and uh, and ask a few uh, you know people around if you want to send your CV I think you No uh, no <laughs> look
2: I, I I any any ex pros who want to gig at SBS, you hand them to me and i am totally <laughs> i put them in this cabinet like well actually i I put it in the first bin i walk past there's no jobs going at sbs mate so look if there is anything comes up i'll let you know a little bit protective i have have built this i have built this wall around my role here and i'm not stupid all these guys who have way better cvs than i ever had um mitch finally the wind is going to be in your in your back on october three i know that much win lose or draw but you're going to have a great day and we wish you all the best for your final race, mate. We, of course, will be showing it live and we can I can't wait to see you on the Pave. Eh?
3: Oh, I can't wait to be there and um, drink a cold beer in the middle of the velodrome afterwards.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you.
3: Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks,
2: Mitch. Brilliant. So that was it. Mitch, uh, so all
1: all good, all good. Great podcast today. Yeah, look,
2: he's a he's a legend. He's he's had an amazing career, and like like every pro, the yeah. highs and lows. But he's a humble guy, and, and look forward to catching up with him back in Melbourne. We might like get him
1: in the hot seat here live. I think I'll tell him he can send me CV note to <laughs> you. You know, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, very quickly, because there is racing on back tonight. There is a stage of the Vuelta. Uh, when you see a stage like this, what do you think?
2: Uh, there's a small climb in the middle. It's yeah. only a Category 3. It's almost mid-stage. So, look, I think it's a potential day for the sprinters. However, the sprinters' teams will be a bit tired. So it could be an opportunist move. A breakaway yeah. could win the day. Yeah, Okay. will well, we'll see. And you'll be commentating this with... We'll Washington. do, with Maddie Keenan. Yes, we're looking forward to this final week it's not done yeah a lot of oh, racing to come
1: absolutely thank you for uh, joining us today this was the uh, Zwift Cycling Central podcast before we go let me remind you that you can uh, download stream or subscribe to our podcast on our website sbs.com.au slash cycling central or log a ride with our friends at
0: Zwift before we go a quick word from our sponsors. With La Walter is all about climbing so why not try Geraint Thomas's athlete workout fun is flying uphill A great pillar of any climbing is muscular endurance, and believe me when I say that's what you'll get. Testing yourself on training plans alongside world-class cyclists is what makes Zwift so exciting. I can't wait to show my mates the fitness I've been able to build at home. All you need is a bike, trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com, and I'll see you on there soon. Right on.